now streaming on Paramount Plus. Gather your besties. We are very exclusive. And get ready. Mom, go make snacks. For sure, Regina. Yeah. For the movie that hits like a bus in a good way. No one dies. Mean Girls. Made at PG 13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. morning. It's Wednesday, March 17th, and you're listening to the College Football Daily. My name is Chris Hummer, and today I'm pinch hitting for your usual host, Trey Scott. Kind of help keep our batting average up in Trey's absence, I've brought in a star guest over from CBS Sports, National College Football writer Dennis Dodd. Dennis has been one of the OGs of college sports reporting for a very long time. He had a great article yesterday or earlier this week about the dead period potentially being lifted at the end of May. I know a lot of people at 24-7 Sports are interested in that subject with a lot of these schools wanting to have official visits come up. So that'll be fascinating. But another thing that I know you've reported on a lot throughout your career is transfer rules. And the ACC had a pretty notable change on Monday when the conference announced that it would change its interconference transfer rules that would allow a player to go from one ACC to another without penalty. Previously, if a player had received an NCAA hardship waiver, the ACC still made them sit out a year in residence as a penalty. Essentially, you were going to have to sit a year if you went from Duke to North Carolina or from Clemson to Virginia Tech. There was no way around it unless you were a grad transfer. Now that rule is lifted, and if you get an NCAA hardship waiver or something of the like, you're able to play right away. But Dennis, to kind of start, I follow transfers every day. I'm part of our transfer portal group at 24-7 Sports. And even I have a difficult time keeping up with each conference's individual transfer rules. I'm wondering, from your perspective, as somebody who's covered for this for so long, how muddled is that landscape? What is that like to follow? Yeah, Chris, it's really muddled um, from conference to conference. It almost reminds me of how disparate the conferences were in dealing with COVID. You know, they're, they're all out for their own interests. Not not that these conferences necessarily have uniform transfer rules, but it is confusing to anybody within those conferences or outside those conferences. And it all comes back to, look, the reason why coaches at one time were be able to block players. It's just a competitive thing. And it, it it's really kind of trite and hairy high school that the normal student can transfer anytime they want. And, and they do on average uh, more than once. But if you're if you're under scholarship, you're bound to these schools like some sort of indentured athlete. And I'm not the only one saying that. It's been said for a long time. And, and so they deserve whatever they get in this. I thought the ACC was really had a vision on this. And I, I suspect in short order, all the power fives will fall in line and do the same thing because there's no reason why they, they shouldn't be able to transfer. But look, the burden's on the coaches. So they, you know, they have a tougher time keeping players. I don't care. I mean, that, that's what they get paid million, millions of dollars for to manage a roster and win games, not to restrict these players who, by the way, I'm reminded of a a backup quarterback at Miami who wanted to transfer to Wake Forest and, and and was blocked. Wake Forest is, you know, for his course of study was a better school. And this was a Tom Mars case. He eventually got to go, but it was ridiculous. So I, I think this will fall into line fairly quickly. Yeah, we actually, we saw, I guess, speaking of kind of those blocking, of, like blocking within conferences, we saw an example of this really recently that got some national attention. Uh, Dylan Brooks, who was Tennessee's top overall signee in the 2021 class, uh, signed with Tennessee, but he requested to get out of his NIL or NLI when Josh Heupel was hired and Gus Malzahn was fired, or when uh, Jeremy Pruitt was fired and he wanted to transfer to Auburn. And Josh Heupel blocked that move 
early on to another SEC school just on the grounds of kind of the SEC rules allowing him to do so. Eventually, they relented because public relations kind of was a bit of a nightmare for that program. But we see this even today. And I guess speaking of that, this is a good time to quickly run over how each Power Five conference handles these interconference transfer rules. So the ACC just made the change that we talked about. No restrictions outside of the NCAA mandated year in residence. The Big Ten has a rule where you must complete a year in residence for eligibility, kind of like the ACC was before its changes. So anybody but a grad transfer who transfers in the Big Ten from a Big Ten school to another Big Ten school has to sit a year. The Big 12 is even more punitive, except for walk-ons, which we saw famously in the Baker Mayfield case. Athlete must forfeit a season of eligibility. Forfeit. So they don't get it back if they transfer from one Big 12 school to another Big 12 school. I think recently we saw an example of that with Austin Kendall trying to transfer from Oklahoma to West Virginia. Lincoln Riley was trying to block that when public relations got on him and there was kind of an outcry against it. Oklahoma backed down and allowed Austin Kendall to transfer and play right away. But that is still a rule in place in the Big 12. The Pac-12, you must sit out a year in residency if you're not a grad transfer. Up until 2019, the Pac-12 had the same rules as the Big 12, and you lost a full season of eligibility if you were to transfer from Pac-12 school to Pac-12 school. And the SEC, which I think is probably the most famous example of this particular rule, you have to sit out a year in residence except for grad transfers. Um, We saw that this year. uh, There was a big fight over Cade Mays going from Tennessee are going to Tennessee from Georgia. And uh, the conference backed down on that one because of COVID. But Greg Sankey has been really strict and very forthright about the SEC wanting to maintain that rule because that's what the coaches want. And we'll get into a little bit more about this and how this is going to work moving forward with Dennis after the break. Rise and shine, football fans. This is Susanna Fuller from Morning Footy, a podcast part of the CBS Sports Galazzo Network covering the breadth of the global game. Join me, Nico Cantor, Charlie Davies, Alexis Guerreros, and guests every morning for the perfect blend of news, analysis, conversation, and exclusive interviews. If you love soccer, then look no further. We've got you covered for Europe's top five leagues, the W Gold Cup, the Champions League Knockout Stage, CONCACAF Nations League, NWSL, MLS, Transfer News, and much more. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe to Morning Footy. The madness is upon us, and the Eye of College Basketball podcast is your audio guide for the entire NCAA tournament. Over the next few weeks, Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander will take you from Selection Sunday to net cutting in Indianapolis. This week, they'll help you fill out, the bra- fill out your bracket and then provide recaps after each day of action as the tournament tips off. If you want the best March Madness analysts, subscribe to the Eye of College Basketball podcast anywhere you find this one. Dennis, speaking of March Madness, do you have a, do you have a pick this year? I do. I filled out my bracket. Uh, I'm going out on a limb and picking Gonzaga. How about that? Oh man, that's a that's an original one. I mean, I'm out here in Big Twelve country and I'm picking Baylor, so I'm not really I'm not going out on a limb either. I feel like the one seeds are the safe way to go this time of year. Yeah, I, I like Baylor a lot. I don't like them because they don't have the game becomes more of a half court game in the tournament and they don't have a big man who can score with his back to the basket. And if they have a bad shooting game, then they might be done. But that that story is an amazing one. I'm going off on a tangent, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, um, to kind of bring us back, I'll mention a Gonzaga player, Jalen Suggs, probably my favorite player to watch in college basketball this year. He can really transfer in the open court. And speaking of transfers, we'll roll back into the kind of the transfer subject we were discussing earlier. You mentioned this earlier about how punitive some of these rules can be. Can you kind of explain why 
these conferences have these rules in the first place. You mentioned that coaches kind of want this. Can you go into kind of that thinking from a conference and a coaching perspective about why they don't want players transferring from one school in their conference to another? Well, it, it developed basically because the conferences could. Um, I think I, I did research on it. I think I traced it back to at least 1964 in NCAA legislation. So it's been more than 50 years where they've been able to do this. And, you know, as, as the money became bigger, as the games became bigger, you can understand why they'd want to keep it in place. But it's just, it's been a bedrock of, shall we say, eligibility of NCAA athletes for what, 55 years now. And it's just come to a head here lately when the practice of blocking, you just mentioned a couple of examples, the practice of blocking has become so ridiculous and so outlandish in 2017, Bill Snyder, the former Kansas State coach, had a, uh, I think it was a receiver named Corey Sutton, who he blocked from 35 schools because the kid, the kid had been in some, it it was, you know, it was punitive on his way out the door. And I think the kid had been in some trouble. And this was, this was Bill Snyder's way of saying F you out the door. And it went to arbitration with the school and the school upheld him. And John Curry stepped in and like, you know, common sense, you know, let the kid doesn't want to be here. You don't like him, let him go. And that was almost a tipping point for me at that point, or that, you know, how does that even happen? You know, the West Lunt situation with Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State, that quarterback who eventually went to Illinois, he blocked him from 35 schools. So what are we talking about? Who empowers those people? What gives them the right to do that? And we're, we're told, you know this, Chris, you know, we're told time and again, well, if they spend that year in residence, they're more likely to graduate. Well, that doesn't hold any water. And it's hypocritical because you don't have that sort of rule for the Olympic sports. You have it for the, for the, uh, for the revenue sports. So the, the woman who plays volleyball can, can go whenever she wants. The, wh- what about her graduation rate? So it's time. It's time. Yeah, the year in residence rule was hypocritical for a number of reasons, but uh, I, I agree, it's definitely time. And I guess speaking of that, new ACC commissioner Jim Phillips told ESPN on Tuesday about this subject. He'd like to see a modernization of the NCAA. Do you anticipate changes like the ACC made earlier this week becoming more and more common? I think in short order, the four power fives are going to fall right in, right in line. They're, they're going to have to. Public pressure, media pressure, you, know, you mentioned those other cases public relations, it's going to have to be that way, you know, just because we're in an era when players are so, athletes are so empowered and should be with these basic rights. We're not talking about anything outlandish. We're talking about their ability to transfer from schools. I talked to a big 12 source this morning and, you know, about their, their situation where athletes must forfeit a season that will automatically go away when the one-time transfer rule comes in. In other words, the Big 12 will be the same as the ACC once that comes in, because that rule is attached to if NCAA rules dictate that they must sit out a year in residence. Well, obviously, when that comes in, that won't be the case. So the Big 12 is going to change. Um, We know that's going to happen. And I would suspect they'll all change. And the SEC will be last because it's the most competitive and the coaches don't want to do it. And they want to have, you know, they want to keep Cade Mays there because they're worried about him beating him. But you know what? For $6 million a year or whatever, just, you know, get, get better players and coach harder. Uh, no doubt about that. I look forward to all the petty arguments uh, between the SEC head coaches over the next 24 months. 
Let me put my Seneca hat on for a second. Conventional wisdom right now is the NCAA Division I Council will finally take up the one-time transfer exemption that you mentioned in April when they meet at the Final Four like they do every year, which would allow players to transfer once in their career without that um, year of residence penalty. In my mind, looking at the ACC do this now, a month out potentially from that rule coming into place, it just seems like they're trying to get ahead for a slight PR win. Do you see these conferences really... This is more of an opinion than, I guess, a reporting question. Do you see this as these conferences really wanting to kind of make change for the student-athletes and make things better? Or are they just trying to get out in front from a public relations perspective for something they know that's coming? On, on the one-time transfer rule or just in general for all these, all these things? I think in general for all these things, but specifically with the ACC loosening up this restriction now, about a month away from it essentially being mandated by the NCAA, most likely. I think it was a brilliant move on the part of... Uh... Of Jim Phillips. I think he's a very progressive thinker. I know he's a rational critic of the NCAA. You know, he's not he's not a rebel out there, but he sees that these basic rights from the students need to be recognized. And and are they grandstanding? Well, look, if they weren't grandstanding, you know, we'll see you in court. I mean, that's what it's come. You know, we've got we've got this Supreme Court case coming up on March 30th with Austin and the NCAA. We've got two more in the, I guess, in the bullpen that have to be heard. We've got NIL coming up and you just might as well admit it's going to happen. Is it going to mean an overall, I guess, decrease of NCAA power? Yeah, I I think it will. I think it's going to slant towards the athletes. Players are going to have agents, at least marketing agents in the NIL era. You're going to have to figure out recruiting where they're going to get inducements in NIL, but at least some of it will be above the table. You know, you're going to have a clearinghouse as it stands right now, a clearinghouse on how much these players can earn. But if they try to cap it at all, you're going to be right back in court with another lawsuit because that's why we're here in the first place, Chris, because of O'Bannon in 2009. You know, he, he wanted to get his and that opened up the I don't know, the floodgates for everyone. And I, and I think it should, frankly. I mean, you know, philosophically, these players, you know, when, I'll use one example. When they signed their national letter of intent, it didn't say, uh, by the way, you're going to be quasi-quarantined for a year and have to get up at 6 a.m. every day to test. That's something that very frankly should have been collectively bargained with a, with a player's association. And yeah, did they have the option of opting out? Yes, but the pressure was to play. So I'm getting again, getting off on another tangent, but but that's why we're here. If you don't change now, you're going to end up in court. No, and I think your tangent's an important one, and it kind of leads to my last question. Um, this transfer kind of change that we're about to see in college football, both from the ACC and likely from the NCAA very soon, I think it's just a small slice of what could be a paradigm shift for college athletics. I guess as somebody who's trying to keep a 10,000 foot view on all of this as it's happening, how different is college athletics going to look potentially in three to five years with NIL on the horizon, transfer legislation on the horizon, cases in the courts, Congress taking up potentially NIL bills as well? Like, What is this going to look like three to five years from now? It's going to look different, but it's going to look the same. It's going to look different in that a lot of these players like professionals are going to be brands unto themselves. You know, they're going to have a social media following they're getting paid for. They're going to have endorsements. They're going to have their own YouTube channels that they can get paid for. I I don't have a problem with that. I think it stays the same in that until further notice, when Ohio State and Michigan play, it's not going to matter. It's still Ohio State and Michigan. 
and nobody's going to boo the quarterback or rip apart the locker room. I love this. The old NCAA saw if they earn anything, one dime more, one dime more. This is actually their argument in Austin. If they earn one dime more, it's going to rip apart the locker room. The quarterback makes more than the guard. Well, guess what? It's already happening. There was a Blake Ferguson, an old friend, long former long snapper at LSU, with his Pell Grant, with his scholarship checks, was making net $12,000 a year. That's $48,000 he didn't have because he came to college. So he, he socked that away. That's what he did with it. It's going to be a lot bigger. Spencer Rattler's social account uh, was estimated at the beginning of last season when he had only taken seven college snaps at $736,000 annually. Is the locker room going to turn on him because he makes that money? Absolutely not, because we've seen it in practice. Kyler Murray signed a $5 million contract with the A's, won the, the Heisman Trophy, and led Oklahoma to a playoff. It seemed to get along pretty well. So when, when those teams play each other, it's just, as I say now, you could line up 11 chickens and 11, and Ohio State jerseys and 11 chickens in Michigan jerseys. And because of that history, that 120-year history, people would sell out the stadium to watch because it's a rivalry. So that won't change. What will change is what these, how we view these athletes as brands, but they will still be athletes and they'll still, still be college athletes. I, I, should, I should say that will change if and when there's a number big enough for any of these athletes for, for, the meet, for fans to turn on them. And by turning on them, I mean turning off their TVs and not going to games. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I, I tend to agree. I think Michigan State basketball presented by Rocket Mortgage will still be watched in the NCAA tournament later this week. And I get the feeling that Spencer Rattler presented by Gatorade will also still be viewed by Oklahoma fans. So uh, no doubt on that. But um, Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. You can follow Dennis on Twitter at CBS.com. Uh, he's all over every breaking college football news story. And uh, we really appreciate his time. Chris, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must Listen, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found.